We come now to Philippians chapter 2, and the, the title of this sermon this morning is Spiritual Unity in the Body, The Appeal. The Appeal. Paul is going to make an appeal here, and we're going to study this appeal this morning. If someone were to ask you what the greatest threat to the church is, what would you say? What would your answer be? What is the the greatest threat to the church today? Some would say it's Satan or spiritual powers. Some would say it's false teachers who are creeping into the church trying to lead people astray. Some would say it's the government trying to shut down churches. They tried to do that already and it'll come again. Just be ready. They're going to try and shut down churches again. Some would say it's liberals trying to undermine the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. And if you think about all of those threats, while all of those are threats to the church, all of those are threats that come from outside of the church. Come from those who are opposed to the gospel. But there's also a great threat to the church that many Christians don't think about. And this threat is not one which comes from outside of the church, but it comes from within. This great threat to the church is disunity. Disunity. You see, a church that has disunity is an ineffective church. A church that has disunity is a spiritually weak church. A church that has disunity is a a church that's on the brink of destruction. In fact, this was Paul's concern for the Corinthian church. And in 2 Corinthians 12.20, he says, For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, there will be jealousy, Angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. What happens when a church behaves this way? They become ineffective witnesses of the gospel. If someone were to walk into our church and find us fighting and bickering at one another... What kind of witness would we be for Christ? Our slogan would be, come come to Christ and you can join the fight. But not the fight for the truth, the fight against one another. And we would be no witness at all. We would be a church who are not conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul knows that not only did this threat exist in the church at Philippi, but it exists in every church. This is a threat to every church. Only Paul had heard about it at the church at Philippi. And he addressed it specifically in chapter 4 and verse 2 where he says, I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. What were these two women fighting over? We don't know. We don't know what it was. People have speculated. But we don't know what was going on. But there was a fight that was going on in the church. And he hears that there's disunity in the church. And he wants that disunity to be corrected. And so he writes this portion of Philippians 2 to encourage the church at Philippi to be unified. To be unified. In fact, we could title these first four verses in Philippians 2 as a a call to unity. 
It's a call to unity. And what is the key to having unity in the body of Christ? I'll tell you what the key is. Humility. Humility. You see, pride will tear a church apart. But humility will build it up. And as we start in on these first 11 verses here in chapter 2, we're going to see over the next couple of Sundays, Paul's call to unity through humility. In verses 1 through 4, Paul gives an exhortation to unity through humility. And then in verses 5 through 11, it's an example of humility. He's going to call the church to be unified, to be humble and to be unified. And then he's going to give an example of what humility looks like. And what Paul writes in these 11 verses here, in Philippians chapter 2, are what one commentator calls one of the most sublime pieces of literature the world has ever known. This is a a rich and magnificent passage of Scripture because in it we see not only our call and our duty to be humble servants who are unified, but we see the beautiful and glorious picture of Christ who is the greatest example of all of what it means to be a humble servant. And so if you haven't already, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 and let me read our passage for us this morning. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now as we come to chapter 2, we must realize that this topic of unity here is not a new topic. As Paul begins in chapter 2 here, this is not new. This topic of unity that he's discussing. In fact, this is something that we saw back up in chapter 1 in verse 27. If you remember, Paul wanted to hear that the Philippian church was standing firm. How? In one spirit. And with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul has already been telling the church that he wants them to be of one mind and one spirit. He wants them to be unified. But now he's going to expand on this topic. He wants to make sure that the church understands how important unity is and how it is accomplished in the body of Christ. It's so important. Now, as I said last week, the the Christian life is a war. It's a war. It's a battle. And it's a battle not against flesh and blood, but it's against speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Or as Ephesians 6.12 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but this is a spiritual war that we are in. And the Philippians knew this. In fact, right after the church was founded in Philippi, there was a satanic attack that was launched against the church. We read about this in Acts 16. Right after Lydia and her whole household were baptized, a demon-possessed girl kept following Paul around. 
This girl who was demon-possessed is following Paul around and shouting out that Paul and his companions, the guys that are with him, were servants of God who were proclaiming the way of salvation. And you would think, well, let the girl run around and proclaim this, right? But she's demon-possessed. Paul didn't want demons proclaiming anything about them. Nothing. He didn't want want any affirmation from a demon because if they affirmed what the demon had said, they would have been joining forces with the demon. So what does Paul do? He cast the demon out of this girl. As an apostle, sent by Christ, He has the ability to do that through the power of Christ. And he casts a demon out of this girl. But what happens when Paul does that? The people get upset. This little girl had been working for others as a fortune teller. But now she's no longer demon possessed. She can't tell fortunes anymore. And it makes these guys upset. So what do they do? They have Paul and Silas arrested. They have them arrested and beaten and thrown in jail. The church was attacked. Attacked by Satan. By his demons. The the Philippian church was also attacked by false teachers. And this is what happens to every church, right? Every church is attacked by false teachers. We're always under a constant attack from false teachers. That is, false teachers want to get into the walls of our church. They want to get to you to lead you astray. Always. They're never going to give up. They're constantly after you. That's why we have to practice discernment. That's why we have to know the Scriptures. As Keith taught us even this morning in in equipping hour about the attributes of God, we've got to come to know God more and grow in our knowledge of Him because false teachers are not going to give up. I remember a few months ago when a man called me to attack the doctrine of the Trinity. He wanted to argue over the Trinity, and I gave him Scripture after Scripture after Scripture to help him understand the Trinity, and all he called to do was attack. He was a false teacher. False teachers are always attacking and wanting to take down God's church. In fact, in Philippians 3, 2, Paul warns the Philippians about false teachers, and he says, beware of the dogs. He calls them dogs what false teachers are. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Those false teachers. He says, beware of them. And so the Philippian church, the Philippian church has seen spiritual warfare. They've seen it. They know all about it. They know all about the spiritual battle that we as Christians are fighting. They know that we are in a battle with outside forces. Sadly, instead of Christians uniting together to fight this war against outside forces, we as Christians start battles inside of the church. We begin to tear each other down. We fight inside of the church over things that are personal desires, personal preferences. And we'll argue and we'll we'll fight about these things. We become embittered and angry with each other over these things. These things that in the big picture don't really matter. The color of the walls don't matter. The color of the chairs don't matter. It doesn't really matter. 
But churches will fight. People within the church will fight with one another. And what happens when the church begins to fight? The church becomes weak. The church becomes weak. I mean, imagine an army that's going out to fight the enemy, and all you hear from this army is a bunch of bickering and arguing over who gets to use what weapon or what direction we're going to go in or, oh, well, I don't like that plan. What would we say about an army that's acting that way? We would conclude they're going to lose, right? They're going to lose. Why? It's not because they lack physical strength or numbers, but because they lack unity. And if you don't have unity, you don't have strength. A strong army is a united army. We've all heard the motto, united we stand, what? Divided we fall. Did you know that motto is actually biblical? They stole it from Jesus. Who said in Mark 3.25, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. United we stand, divided we fall. And sadly, this has taken down many churches throughout church history. Disunity within the body. Not a battle that's being waged from outside of the church, but a battle that's going on inside of the church, among the very members of the church. And why is this battle going on? Because no one was willing to humble themselves. And so the church splits. Church is divided because they weren't focused on being united. And that's what Paul wants to convey to the Philippian church. You see, the Philippian church was considered, if you study the Philippian church, they were considered to be a strong and a healthy church. Very strong, a very healthy. They had good doctrine. They were a very evangelistic. They were a giving church. They loved to give and give and give. They were a praying church. In fact, that's how the church was even started, at a prayer meeting. This is a strong church. And Paul rejoiced about all the things that are going on at the church in Philippi. But he also knew that what would take this church down is disunity in the body. And so he writes this portion of this letter to exhort them to be unified. And so as, as we work our way through this passage, we're going to see Paul's plea for unity, and then we're going to see an explanation of how to be unified. And so in these four verses, we're going to see first the appeal for unity. And second, we're going to see the attitudes of unity. And then third, we're going to see the actions toward unity. So let's begin with our first point here. Point number one, the appeal for unity. Look again at verse 1. Philippians chapter 2 and in, in verse 1. Notice what Paul says there. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now notice Paul begins with the word therefore. Therefore. And we know that if someone begins a sentence with a therefore, that there must be something that comes before this that they're referring to. You don't just start a random sentence with therefore, if you haven't said anything before that. And so what is Paul referring to here by this word therefore? He's referring all the way back to the main command back in chapter 1 and verse 27, which is this, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word conduct there is the main verb that, that governs the rest of the verses there in verses 27 through 30. 
It's the main command. And then Paul begins to tell us how that looks. What does it look like to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, he told us we need to stand firm in one spirit. With one mind striving together. Simply put, we need to be united. We must be united. No matter what the circumstances are that we're in. If we're in a time of peace, we need to be united. If we're in a time of suffering, we need to be united. We must be united as a church. And now Paul is looking back to that unity that he wanted to hear the Philippians having. And he's now expanding on that. And so he uses this word, therefore, therefore, to ground himself in what he has just said and then to set up his appeal. Essentially, he's saying, in light of what I just told you, therefore, do this. And what does he want them to do? We'll look at the beginning of verse 2. Notice what he says there. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. He's saying, look, my heart has already begun to rejoice because of you. But fill up that joy in my heart to completion. He's saying, my cup is full of joy, but I want you to fill it all the way up to the brim. You ever go to a coffee shop where they fill it all the way up to the brim? And you go, yes. I love that. Because I paid for that. <laughs> That's what Paul has in mind here. He's saying, fill my joy, the cup of joy. It's already full because of you, but fill it all the way up to the brim. And what would it be that would fill Paul's cup up to the brim? Unity in the church. Unity in the church. And so he begins to appeal for unity in verse 1. And his appeal is based on four realities that are true in the Philippians' lives. Four realities that are true in their lives and that are true in all believers' lives. And notice they they all begin with the word if. Look at that again in verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now usually in English, when we read the word if, we don't automatically assume something to be true. Right? That's why we use that word if. Growing up, you might have said, if you had a million dollars, what would you buy? Implied, you don't have a million (laughs) dollars. Well, in the Greek, this word if doesn't imply that something is not true, but it actually implies that it is true. And so what Paul is saying here is, if this condition is true, and it obviously is, then this is what you are to do. And so another way that we could translate this word if here is to say since. So we could read back through these four if statements and we could read it this way. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion. And so as Paul is making his appeal for unity in the church He's making this appeal based upon four realities that are true in every believer's life. Not only in the Philippians' lives, but also in our lives as well. And as we work our way through these four realities, I want you to recognize that Paul is not making his appeal here because of something good that the Philippians have done themselves. I want you to recognize this. He's not telling us that these are realities in our life because of something that we have done. But these are realities in each believer's life because of what God has done in us. 
That is, these are spiritual realities, and these are supernatural realities. They're supernatural realities that have already happened to the Philippians in the past because God did it in their lives. And these are four realities that have happened in our lives as well because of what God has done in us. What are these four realities? Well, let's start with reality number one. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. That word encouragement there in the Greek is the word paraklesis. It has the the root meaning of coming alongside someone to give comfort and and counsel. It also has the meaning, though, of, of exhorting or encouraging someone. Encouraging them to do an action. But here in the context, we read this in the context, it seems to be that Paul is using it here on the softer side. Meaning not so much to exhort someone to go and do something, but to comfort someone or to offer a word of encouragement. To offer encouragement to them. And so as Paul is exhorting this church to be unified, he begins his appeal by reminding them of the comfort that each one of them have in Christ. Since you have comfort in Christ. And every one of us who are believers here this morning have experienced this, right? We understand this reality in our our lives that you and I have experienced comfort in Christ. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what God has done in us. We have comfort, and notice what he says, in Christ. Oftentimes we think of the Holy Spirit as what? The comforter, right? We think of the Holy Spirit as the comforter. And it's true that the Holy Spirit is the comforter. In fact, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the parakletos, uh, the helper, the comforter. But notice what Paul is telling us here. That Christ is also our comforter. In fact, hold your finger in Philippians 2 and turn over to Luke chapter 2. Turn over to Luke chapter 2. In Luke 2, we, we read of this glorious, amazing account of this man, Simeon. Simeon had the Holy Spirit reveal to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Messiah. Notice what he says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. He says this, it says this, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, notice this, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What was Simeon looking for? He was looking for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation is the word paraclesis. The consolation or or the comforter of Israel was who? It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. That's who the, the consolation of Israel is. He's looking for the Messiah. That's who Simeon's looking for. Because in verse 26 it says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. That Simeon was promised by the Holy Spirit that he was not going to die until he saw the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. The comforter of Israel. And so we see that Christ is our comforter. And we find comfort in Him. And for every believer, we know this to be true, right? You can try and find comfort in this world. Won't happen. You won't find it there. You can try and find comfort in yourself. Won't happen. You will never find comfort in yourself. The only way that you and I can have comfort in this life is to find it in Christ. 
It's in Christ. It's through repentance and faith. Through believing in the Messiah. The Christ who came and died on a cross for our sins. To redeem us from an eternity of hell. We find comfort in Him. And Paul is making an appeal back in our passage in in Philippians 2. He's making this appeal and he's saying, since you all know that there is encouragement or comfort in Christ, you know this, you've experienced this before. And since you know this to be true, shouldn't that then compel you to strive for and preserve the unity that he desires to see in his church? And Paul could have stopped with this one appeal right here, and it would have been enough. That should have been enough to compel them to strive for unity. Look, you have all received comfort in Christ, now be unified. And that would have been enough. One commentator says, if if one's own life in Christ does not stimulate the soul to the noblest effort, it is useless to go on with the appeal. It's useless. It's the comfort that we find in Christ. It's that appeal that ought to drive us to be unified with one another. We have comfort. We have encouragement in Christ. And so Paul is saying, let's be unified. Let's be unified. And that one appeal could have been enough, but Paul continues on with another appeal. He gives us reality number two. Back in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, he gives us reality number two. He says, if there is any consolation of love. If there's any consolation of love. Now this word consolation here in the Greek has a close meaning to that of paraclesis. That word that we just saw, and that word that we saw back in Luke chapter 2. It it has a similar meaning, but it's a different word in the Greek. And it means to offer encouragement, consolation, or comfort. In fact, the Net Bible translates this as, if there is any comfort provided by love. Now we would look at this and And we would ask, what is Paul referring to here? When he talks about this consolation of love, what is Paul referring to here? Well, he's talking about the love of God. It's the love of God that was bestowed on us the moment that we believed in Him. In fact, Romans 5.5 says, And hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. At the moment of our salvation, we received the love of God. Love that was poured out in in our hearts. That was the moment that we were baptized in the Holy Spirit. We were baptized in the Holy Spirit. The moment that we believed in Him and we received the love of God. God's love was poured out upon us to redeem us, to save us, to be His. 1 John 4.10 says this, And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not that any of us loved Him and therefore we deserve His love. No, we don't deserve His love. Because we've all sinned against Him. A holy and righteous God. But God has loved us. He's loved us. At the moment of salvation, it was God's love that changed our wretched, sinful hearts so that we could then love Him. And not only so that we could love Him, but so that we could love who? Others, right? 1 John 4.19 says we love because He first loved us. The only way that you and I are able to have true love in our lives is to have, first of all, the love of God in our lives. Listen, we didn't earn this love. 
We didn't earn this love. We don't deserve this love. None of us deserves the love of God in our lives. But by God's grace, He has loved us and He has saved us. And it was a supernatural act that was done to us. And it's this comforting love of God that we received when we were saved that should motivate us to be unified as a church, right? We've all received God's love as brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, be unified. You would think that the encouragement that we have in Christ and the comforting love that we have from God would be enough to motivate us to be unified, but not for Paul. He desires unity so much in the church that he continues on with reality number three. Notice what he says there. If there is any fellowship in the Spirit. He's appealing now to our our fellowship in the Spirit. Now again, let me remind you that we could translate that word if as since. Meaning, since there is fellowship in the Spirit. What does Paul mean by this? The word fellowship is the word koinonia. You've probably heard that word before. The word koinonia. And it describes a partnership or communion or a, a close relationship. But it also describes a mutual sharing among one another. A mutual sharing among one another. It's what we're going to do after service today. We're going to share among one another. We're going to have koinonia. We're going to have fellowship, communion with each other. Partnership. Building close relationships with each other. We have fellowship. But notice, how are believers able to have this kind of fellowship with one another? I mean, if we were to be honest, with all of the different people that we have gathered here this morning, with all of the different hobbies that each one of us has, with all of the likes and the dislikes that each one of us has, if you tried to put a bunch of unbelievers in a room together like this and told them all to get along, it wouldn't happen. It'd be impossible. But we aren't like them. We're different. We're not like the unbelievers. What's different about us? We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the Holy Spirit. We've been indwelt and sealed with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. At the moment of salvation, Ephesians, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God? And that you're not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Every one of us in this room who are believers have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We've been sealed with the promise of God's Spirit. Every one of us. We have been baptized by the Spirit. We've been sealed by the Spirit. And listen, church, this is not a second stage of Christianity in which you must be baptized with the Spirit. It's not a second stage of Christianity. No, the moment that you and I were saved by Christ, we were baptized and we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Which means there are no first class or second class Christians in the church. There aren't. As if a first-class Christian who is, is somebody who's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some kind of second experience. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not true. There are no first-class or second-class Christians in the church. At the moment of our salvation, we were baptized. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we now have the Spirit living inside of us. 
And we're then able to have fellowship with one another because we all have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Amen? And listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4.30. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you know how you and I can grieve the Holy Spirit? By having disunity in the body of Christ. When we are disunified as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, listen church, that grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who has sealed us. What are we to do? We're to have fellowship with each other. We're to be unified. We, we have a common bond with each other as we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so when we have disunity in the body of Christ, it grieves the Spirit. And as I said, the only reason that we have the Spirit indwelling us is because of the work of God that He has done in us. Not because of anything that we've done but because of what God has done. It's a supernatural act that has happened to us. And when I think about brothers and sisters in Christ and the fact that they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, just like I do, that should motivate me to be unified with them. It should drive us to be unified but we would strive to preserve the unity in the spirit that we have. Well, there's a fourth reality. There's a fourth reality that, that Paul gives. Let's look at reality number four. He says, if any affection and compassion. Now, at, at first glance, it, it might seem as if Paul is appealing to the Philippians' affection and compassion, to their affection and compassion. That is, since you have affection and compassion. But remember, what has Paul just done in these last three appeals? He's appealed to something that they had received as a supernatural blessing from God. This is not something that they've created in and of themselves. This is not something that they have done in and of themselves. But it's because of something that's happened to them. And the same is true with these words, affection and compassion. Affection and compassion are not something that they have just because they are affectionate and compassionate people. But they have received the affection and compassion of Christ. That word affection in the Greek refers to the inward bowels or the, the seed of emotions. We might say something like, I feel it in my stomach butterflies it's it's a gut-wrenching emotion it's a deep affection that one has for another and Paul used this exact same word back in chapter 1 and verse 8 where he says for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus And the affection that he's talking about here in chapter 2 and verse 1 is the affection that they have received from Christ when they were saved. It's that deep affection of Christ that we have because you and I are in Christ. But they didn't just receive affection, the affection of Christ, but they also received compassion, the compassion of Christ. This word here can also be translated as mercy. As mercy. We talked about it in equipping hour this morning. The mercy of God. One of His attributes. Mercy or compassion. That is, we've not only received affection from Christ, but we have also received mercy from Him. This is a, a divine compassion. It's divine mercy that we have received at the moment of our salvation. And it's the divine compassion, the divine mercy that the Philippian believers have received at the moment of their salvation. And Paul uses God's mercy to motivate us to live for Christ. 
back to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's God's affection and compassion or mercy that He has shown to each one of us that should motivate us to preserve and pursue unity within the body. Think about that, church. We've all received mercy. Shouldn't that drive us to be unified with one another? Listen, no one deserves anything over another person. No one does. All that we have is by God's grace and mercy. And that's what, what Paul is appealing here to. He's saying, I want you to recognize the supernatural gifts that you have been given that you don't deserve, church. But when we have the, the attitude of, I deserve this, that's when disunity begins to erupt in the church. It's that attitude and that thinking that we deserve something that will cause disunity in the church. But what are we called to do? We're called to humble ourselves and pursue unity, realizing that even the good that I have in my own life right now, I don't deserve. I don't deserve it. It's all by God's grace. And it's that grace that should motivate us to pursue unity. Why? So that we can conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that we can reflect Christ to the lost and dying world. So that we can have brothers and sisters in Christ fighting alongside of us as we fight against the rulers and principalities and powers of the air. Right? We need each other. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to fight this battle with us. We can't do it alone. And as we think about these four realities in our lives of what God has done, and we strive for unity in the church, we will be a strong church. We will be a mature church. And we will be a church that reflects the gospel of Christ. An excerpt from Our Daily Bread on October 4th, 1992 said this, during World War II, Hitler commanded all religious groups to unite so that, they, so that he could control them. Among the, the brethren assemblies, half complied and half refused. Those who went along with the order had a much easier time. Those who did not faced harsh persecution. In almost every family of those who resisted, someone died in a concentration camp. When the war was over, feelings of bitterness ran deep between the two groups and there was much tension in the church. Finally, they decided that the situation had to be healed. Leaders from each group met at a quiet retreat. For several days, each person spent time in prayer examining his own heart in the light of Christ's commands. Then they came together. Francis Schaeffer, who told of this incident, asked a friend who was there, what did you do then? He replied, we were just one. We were just one. As they confessed their hostility and bitterness to God and yielded to His control, the Holy Spirit created a spirit of unity among them. Love filled their hearts and dissolved their hatred. When love prevails among believers, especially in times of strong disagreement, it presents to the world an indisputable mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ. And it's when we do this that we are conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul knew that. And he knew that that's what the Philippian believers needed. 
And he knows that that's what every church needs. And that's why he appeals to this church to be united. And by their unity, it would make his joy complete. Notice what he says again there in verse 2. He says, make my joy complete. Listen, church, there is no greater joy for a pastor than to know that the church is unified. There's no greater joy than to see the flock united. And when we're united, we then have great strength. And when we're strong, we can fight this battle together as we all strive to serve one master. But how is that to be done? Well, there are four attitudes of unity that Paul gives us, and we'll look at those next time. Let's pray. Father, Thank you, thank you, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your love. Your love that was bestowed upon us. Your love that, that none of us deserve. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Father, we thank you that you've loved us and that you've sealed us with the promise of your Spirit. Father, I pray that you would help us to pursue unity, that we would be a church united in Christ, that we would be united in the love of God, that we would be united in the fellowship of the Spirit. that we would have compassion for each other, that we would humble ourselves and seek the good of one another as we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the great calling to which you have called us to. Help us to walk worthy of that calling that we might live to bring glory and honor and praise and adoration to your name and your name alone. Help us to reflect that here in our church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.